Welcome to Oak Ridge Bible Chapel. My name's Andrew, I'm one of the pastors here at Oak Ridge, and we are so excited to have you join us today. So grab your Bible and then your iPad, a notebook, pens, pencils, whatever it is that will help you get the most out of today's sermon, and please enjoy our Sunday message. Christmas is so much uh, about children, and we have seen the children's offering of their worship to the Lord, and it was beautiful. It's about children because we're celebrating the birth of a child, the Lord Jesus, the Christ child. Each child is very precious. Each child is uniquely named by their parents. I want to talk about the naming of children, and I'm going to start with the name I was given when I was born many years ago. That was shortly after Noah came out of the ark. (laughs) My full name is James Stewart Turner Rennie. Quite a moniker to attach to a little baby. The Stuart part is from my dad's Scottish roots. The Turner part is from my mother's English family roots. The James part is my dad's first name, so I was named after him. Now, James is a biblical name. He was the Lord's brother, and also we know one of the disciples. James comes from the name Jacob in the Old Testament. So many Bible names have a good meaning, but uh, James or Jacob does not. It means deceiver or trickster, con artist. As you remember, that is what Jacob was. He tricked his father to give him the inheritance, and then he tricked his brother to sell him the birthright. Now, my name reminds me of that old nature in me that can lie and cheat and steal just like Jacob. But I'm so thankful that I got another part in my name, and that's the name Rennie. Now, Rennie comes from the French René. A lot of my patients think I'm French, and they call me Dr. René. It means born again. So you see, my name is the story of my spiritual life. James the sinner is also Rennie, the one born again. That's me a sinner born again, only a sinner saved by grace. Today we will look at yet another prophetic reference to the birth of Christ in the book of Isaiah. Josiah has been taking us to some wonderful references of the Lord in the book of Isaiah, and we're going to look at another one today, four amazing names of our Savior. In fact, these names were sung to us by the children's choir already. Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6 and We'll just read there. Isaiah 9 and 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, Before we look at our text, let's refresh our memory about the backdrop of our story, one that Josiah presented to us two weeks ago. Ahaz was the king of Judah at that time, and he was a wicked guy. Even though Ahaz was wicked, God still cared for his people and sent Isaiah to give King Ahaz a sign of God's care for the nation. Ahaz would not listen to the sign, even though it was one of mercy, He didn't care to hear from the God of his fathers. He consulted mediums and spiritists instead. 
He didn't care for the nation either. He led the nation into idolatrous worship of other gods. He forsook Jehovah and the temple worship and instead built altars to heathen gods. He didn't even care for his own children. In fact, the record says he sacrificed his son to the god Moloch. Recent archaeology findings validate this practice of child sacrifice on the Canaanite altars where babies' bones were discovered strewn around the altar areas. Lest we think we're better, today is no different. Over 64 million children are recorded to have been killed through abortion in the States since it was nationally legalized in 1973. The numbers in Canada are proportionately similar. We're no different. Now this stands in stark contrast to the prophet Isaiah himself who had three children, three sons, who were no doubt loved and valued by him and their mother. Each one was given a special name provided by God that had prophetic significance. And in Isaiah 7 and 3, the first one is mentioned, and his name is Shear Jashub, which means a remnant will return. His name indicates that the nation would ultimately survive in spite of great turmoil. Then the second son comes along, and, and he has a beautiful name, Emmanuel, which means God with us. Here's the nation, here's the reason the nation would survive. It's because they had God with them to care for them and give them grace to survive. The third son was named Maher Shalal Hashbaz. Now, can you imagine your baby and giving him a name like that? That would be a name to live down. Maybe they shortened it to Baz just for, for everyday use. Anyway, the name means quick to the plunder, swift to the spoil, a prophecy of how the nation's enemies would shortly be destroyed by the Lord. Three names for his boys. And they tell a story of God's grace to Israel. Number one, the nation will survive. Number two, because God is with us. Number three, our enemies will be destroyed. Isaiah summarizes the prophetic significance of his son's names in chapter 8 and verse 18, where he says, Here am I and the children the Lord has given me. We are signs and symbols in Israel from the Lord Almighty, who dwells in Mount Zion. These children born to Isaiah were but a wonderful prelude to the prophetic announcement of the birth of, our, of another child, the coming Messiah and King. Now let's look at our text in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, more closely. It says, To us a child is born, to us a son is given. A child born. I've been privileged to be at the birth of many a child, most of them African children. And African babies are beautiful. They come out with a full head of hair, not like the baldies that many people get here. And uh, it's always wonderful to witness a birth of a child. Jesus came the same way. He came through the birth canal. He was, in, he was in Mary's womb. Can you feature that? Because he was really, really a person. He was a human being. 
And then it says, to us, a son is given. Now, long before Mary's son, he was God's son. And God gave his son. And so Jesus had a heavenly father, but no mother. Because he was never born to be God, he is the eternal son. Before time began, the triune God in heaven determined that the son would enter history. He was the son given by the father. We know that verse so well. Can we say it together? For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. This statement speaks to his deity. The mind can barely capture how there can be such a one as the great God. But our mind can just imagine somebody as big as that to be God, bigger than the universe. But the combination of God and man in one person is beyond our understanding. In the words of scripture, it remains a mystery. Matthew eleven twenty seven says, no one understands the son except the father. God and man in one person. That's his divine origin. Next we see that he will have an actual functioning role as a king. It says, and the government will be on his shoulders. The government will be on his shoulders. We still have kings and queens today, but their role is almost entirely ceremonial. Like Queen Elizabeth, who is now with the Lord. Great lady she was. And now King Charles, they, they are figureheads with no real authority to govern the nation. But this king is not like that. It says the government will be on his shoulders. He's going to carry the full weight of authority and responsibility for the ruling of the nation and of the world. In other words, he will be the monarch. Now, there's long been debate about which form of government is the ideal form of government for mankind. Some believe it's democracy. Some believe it's communism. Some believe some combination, some socialism. But God says, it's a monarchy. This is what Jesus will set up when he comes again. Aristotle, the great philosopher, the Greek philosopher, said that the ideal government was an enlightened monarchy. And he was right as far as he went. What he did not envisage was a divine monarchy because this is what God will set up. All other forms of government rely on the integrity and goodwill of people in leadership whether it's socialism, whether it's communism, whether it's, it's democracy, all relies upon the good heart of those who are in charge. Therefore, all forms of earthly government are defective because people are sinners. The old adage holds true, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. When the sinless Son of God rules, there will be a perfect government. His matchless character will see to that. And that is evidenced in his name. So let's look at the names now. The names of the king. He shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The first name is Wonderful Counselor. This speaks to the wisdom of the king. And especially to his moral wisdom. 
I love the way this chapter starts. It says in chapter 9, verse 1, Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. Such poetic imagery here. It begins with a great darkness and gloom stretched out over the land. It's a picture of the moral degradation of the land as described in the last verses of chapter 8 where people who had rejected the Lord along with their king were reduced to looking to mediums and spiritists for any direction in life. And behind these mediums and spiritists was an evil overlord, Satan, the lord of darkness and the great liar. Now today he casts the same darkness over our land. It says in 2 Corinthians that he blinds the eyes of the unbelieving so that they cannot see the gospel. This makes for a double blindness. The blindness of unbelief that's in the hearts of you and me and the blindness of satanic darkness around us. Double blindness. Close your eyes. Blind. Now we turn out the lights. Double blind. Double blind. But then in verse 2, it reads this. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Where does it dawn? Well, it says in verse 1, in Galilee, Galilee of the nations. Galilee was the place where Jesus lived and grew up. It's where he preached most of his sermons. That is the light, and that's the light that the people in Galilee saw. It was the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ to preach the gospel. They are the very words. The light is the very word that comes out of his mouth. It was the wisdom of heaven, the moral teaching that was to be the judicial foundation for the nation. Now there is a, there is a gospel that most clearly affirms that Jesus is the wonderful counselor. It's, in, it's the gospel of Matthew. Because in Matthew, Matthew's gospel, we get the great sermon on the mount. The moral underpinnings of the society that is coming, the one that Jesus will be the king of. Such wonderful counsel by the king. It still has its ancient power to save and to heal. As many, as many of you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a counselor, and it's been my privilege to share this wonderful counsel, not my counsel, but Jesus' counsel, with those who come to me for help. And you know, it's, it's like light. I can remember one man who was not of the Christian faith who sat in my office and we got on to spiritual things and, and uh, he sat there and he said, there is a strange light in this room. He could see it. I was used to it because you see, since I was a kid, I've been walking in the light. But he was coming from darkness. And, and the, 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 the distinctness of his words were just amazing. I see a light. I see a light. When it's applied to the, believe, to the heart of those who believe, there is healing and there is blessing as well as light. Jesus says, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who builds his house upon the rock. Because Jesus is the wonderful counselor, his kingdom will be one of light and truth, justice, righteousness. It says in verse 7 of our chapter, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. 
He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from this time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Now the second name of the coming king is Mighty God. Mighty God. So if Jesus is presented as the wonderful counselor in Matthew's gospel, then it remains to Mark's gospel to present him as the mighty God. Now there's no mention of Christ's birth in the gospel of Mark. He starts right out into his ministry. And in, in Mark's gospel, it, at, at the very first words, it says the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Here comes the mighty God. Then John the Baptist says of this one who is the Christ, he says, after me will come one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. So he's going to be powerful. In Mark, there is little recorded of Jesus' sermons. Instead, there is one miracle after the other. In the first chapter alone, you've got four or five miracles. Bam, 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 one after the other. People being healed, demons being cast out, thousands fed with a few loaves and some fish, a stormy sea being stilled by one word from the Lord. This is the mighty God at work. Well, there's a question. What's the hardest thing that God ever did? Was it creating the universe? No. It says he spoke and the universe came into being. Was it healing people? No. That was accomplished with a simple touch or a simple word of Jesus. Easy, easy for God, easy. I'll tell you what was the most difficult thing God ever did, and it's recorded in stark detail in the Gospel of Mark. It was when Jesus, the Son of God, took your sin and mine on the cross and paid the price for it. Now, that was hard, even for God, the Holy One becoming sin for us. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus said, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Jesus drinking the cup of God's wrath against sin, our sin was hard. God did something very hard for you and me. Suffering forsakenness by his Father on the cross as he bore the load of sin for billions of sinners like you and me. Enduring the forsakenness so that we who have trusted in Jesus will never be forsaken. You will never be forsaken if you have Jesus in your heart. Jesus was forsaken on your account. So in Mark's gospel, no mere man could have done all these things. It was the mighty God working in Jesus Christ. He is the mighty God. He was put to his greatest test, and he accomplished it. And now he's returning to rule, and no enemy will be able to stand against him. He will crush all opposition. The verses in Isaiah 9 and, and 6 bear this out, 9 and 7. It says, well, let's read first of all verse 4. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire, 
Who's going to accomplish all of that? Who's going to defeat all of his foes? It's the mighty God. All opposition will be crushed before the Lord. There will be no contest. Man cannot stand up against the mighty God. When Jesus comes again as King of kings and Lord of lords, once again he will speak with a fiery sword coming out of his mouth and his enemies will be defeated. No contest. The king is the mighty God. The kingdom is safe because the king is all-powerful. The next name of the king is Everlasting Father. Now this name presents a challenge because this title would seem to be reserved only for the Heavenly Father. Although all members of the Trinity are one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, each member is not the same as the other member. The Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Father. And elsewhere in the scriptures, the Lord Jesus is never referred to as our Father. So how can the Lord Jesus be called Everlasting Father? That's the big question. Now some commentators have translated this phrase a little bit differently. Instead of Everlasting Father, they say it can also mean Father of Eternity. I like that because I can get my mind around it. We still employ the word Father to be originator or creator, as in, well, Alexander Graham Bell was the father of the telephone. He created it. He invented it. So the, the word Father is used in this way in, in the Scriptures. In James 1 and 18, it says, God is the Father of the heavenly lights. He, he made the universe. He created the heavenly lights. They were the work of His hands, work of His fingers. He just put the stars into place. So is Jesus, the Son of God, also the Creator? Indeed, He is. And this is how John's Gospel presents the Savior. And uh, what does John's Gospel say about the Incarnation? Well, we read there in John chapter 1, verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was, in, he was with God in the beginning. Through Him, listen, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. And then verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. You know who was in that manger? The creator of the universe. You see, he's the father of eternity. He created it all. And there's another beautiful picture of Jesus in John's gospel. In John chapter 14, concerning future eternity. You know what Jesus says? I go to prepare a place for you. Who is going to be the creator of future eternity? Well, John 14 tells us. It's Jesus. He's making heaven. He's the architect of glory. He's the father of eternity. And I think that's what it means. It speaks to God's timelessness and the timelessness of Jesus. Our, our Redeemer, his eternal existence. So back to our text in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7, says this. We go back to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. There will be no end. 
You see, that's the timelessness of eternity and of God's kingdom. There will be no end to it. It says, he will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. Forever. This speaks to the enduring nature of the kingdom that the king is bringing in. It will never pass away. The Father of eternity, the Lord Jesus, guarantees that it will last forever. Kingdoms of men rise and fall. Nations have their day, and then they are swept away by the tides of war or just simply by internal decay. I think of the great nation to ourself, the United States. My father raised us on American money because he worked across the border in Detroit. I was raised on American money, and then I had the audacity to marry an American. <laughs> so I'm very partial to our friends in the South. But I weep over that nation because I see the seeds of terrible decay, and I believe there are severe cracks in the foundation of that land, and that it's going to fall. It's only a matter of time. The Bible says righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. Now this speaks to our own country as well, because we're just a, a reflection of what happens in America. We have disowned the Lord God. We banish him from our schools and our halls of government. We ignore his commands. We call evil good and good evil. It may soon be the case that the, that the Bible will be listed as hate literature. and it will be canceled. Judgment will surely fall. But there's an, an eternal kingdom, one created by the Lord Jesus, the Father of eternity. It's never going to fall, never going to fail. The ravages of time will not overcome it. It will endure forever because the one who governs it is the Father of eternity. He guarantees it. Our last name of the king in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, is Prince of Peace. What a beautiful name. Prince of Peace. Again, we're going to read verse 7, which says this, of the increase in government and peace, there will be no end. So the king is not only the wonderful counselor, he's not only the mighty God, he's not only the father of eternity, but he's the peacemaker. He's the peace giver. He is our peace. He causes wars to cease and peace to be made. This is the theme of the Gospel of Luke, by the way. The coming of the peace giver is prophesied by Zechariah. In Luke chapter 1 and 7, 79, Zechariah was the father of John the Baptist, and, and uh, when he heard of the birth of his child, coming of his child, he prophesied, and he said, concerning the Savior, glory to God in the highest. Oh, sorry, that's another reference. He says he will guide our feet into the path of peace. Luke chapter 1, verse 79. And then what, then, then what the angels said when they announced Jesus' birth to the shepherds on that starlit night in the fields of Bethlehem. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. In Luke, he brings the blessing of peace. Seven or eight times throughout the book. We don't have time to go through all the references to peace in Luke, but they're very significant references. So did they get peace? No, they didn't. Because the people refused their prince of peace. 
And so Jesus wept over Jerusalem and he said, if you, even you, had known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes, you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Luke 19, 42, 44. You see, here's the truth. There's no peace without the Prince of Peace. This world strives for peace. It will not find peace unless it puts Jesus as the king. And you will not find peace in your heart until King Jesus is, is, is on the throne of your heart as well. And peace comes in three ways, just like there are three beautiful presents under the tree for you, all marked peace. And the first one is peace with God, having a settled relationship with God. Because, you know, because of our sins, we're at war with God. And God stands against us. And the Lord comes to make peace between us and God. It says in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore, having been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what David was saying in his prayer. It's the joy of having sins forgiven and a restored relationship with God. That's the most important peace you can have. It's not sitting in some fancy retirement community beside a lovely lake or beside the mountains and just sipping our pina coladas. And, well, that's peace. No, it's not. If it doesn't have the Lord, there's no peace there. The peace that the Lord brings is a restored relationship with God. And then he gives me the peace of God. Peace in my heart. This is the product of trusting the Lord for his care and keeping in my life. And it says in Philippians chapter 4 verse 7, And the peace of God which passes all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. This world is crying for that. COVID has just added an extra layer of stress upon us. So many people are, 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 are so distressed and distraught and beaten down. The hospitals are full of depressed people, anxious. The young generation is so anxious, they don't have peace. And God says, I'll give you peace, peace in your heart when you know me. And lastly, he brings relational peace. He brings peace with God, he brings peace in my heart, and he brings peace with others. And this is generally the hardest peace to get, but it can happen. When people follow the way of the Lord, they learn how to live in peace and harmony with others, and they practice that, there can be peace. Didn't you enjoy the fellowship we had this morning at breakfast? Wasn't that great? You know what? Just right over at peace. Because it's shalom. It's just people enjoying one another's company and loving relationships. Loving relationships. That's what the Lord brings. That's what heaven's going to be like. But even today, if I follow the Lord's ways, I... If I learn how to love my enemy and seek peace with those who have wronged me, I can get large measures of God's peace in my relational life. It won't be perfect until I get to heaven. But there is here a foretaste of heaven. That is the peace on earth that the angels sang about. There we have it. Four beautiful names of our Savior declaring the blessings of the King from heaven. Wonderful counselor. Now, is Jesus your wonderful counselor? Do you listen to him? 
He who listens to me, Jesus said, will be like a man who builds his house upon the rock. If he, he who doesn't listen to me will be like one who builds his house on the sand and it will gradually be washed away. Washed away. Your life will be washed away unless you have the words of life inside of you. Unless you're listening to the wonderful counselor, you will not be wise. You will end your life so foolishly because you have ignored the wonderful counselor. Is he your mighty God? Protecting and providing for you. Do you trust Jesus and all of the troubles of life? Have you committed to him who is the mighty God? Have you asked him to guide you, protect you, keep you? Do you stay dependent upon him? That's the response to the name mighty God. Is he your father of eternity? Preparing an eternal home for you. Father of eternity. Now a couple years ago, I had a, a heart attack. And I was in the hospital and they were working on me. And uh, didn't know which way it was going to go. And uh, was there some stress there? Yes. But you know, over and above all the stress, there was a great, great calm in my soul. Why? Because I was trusting the Father of eternity. And I know that wherever Jesus is, there's life. And so I cannot truly die. Because the Bible says, absent from the body, what? Present with the Lord. And so I was just looking there, almost dispassionately looking around and saying, well, what are they going to do next? Because I know that if I die, I'm going to glory. And that was a great, great calm in my soul. I don't say that to brag. I say that in thanksgiving to the Lord. Is he your prince of peace? Forgiving your sins and giving you peace from God. Have you responded to the Lord as the Prince of Peace? Have you established him as the center of your peace? Without him, there is no peace. You can try to find it in this world. You're not going to find it. Not without Jesus. He's the Prince of Peace. Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God. Father of Eternity. Prince of Peace. Let's pray. Thank you so much for joining us today. For more sermons, blogs, and other resources, you can check out our website, oakridgebiblechapel.org. To listen to our weekly podcast, Word Processing, you can go to Spotify or Apple Podcasts or any other podcasting platform. Remember, you can always join us in person or on our live stream at 10.30 a.m. on Sundays. Thanks for watching.